Uh, good morning and welcome to Chanel. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. Now, I'm excited for the next two weeks uh, because when I think about vacation Bible stories for grown-ups, the Bible stories that I grew up living are found within the book of Daniel. I think that when you look for like a Mount Rushmore version of, of vacation Bible stories, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel and the Lions in, they're on that list. Absolutely. I can remember growing up, and one of the earliest memories of vacation Bible school that I have is going to a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego blazing furnace vacation Bible school. Loved it. There's a lot of elements as to why kids like it. Fire out of the gate. You get to kind of stand up to the authority, too. It's obviously there, too. And so you have a few elements that kids connect with. <clears throat> excuse me. A few elements that kids connect with, but it's a, <clears throat> it's a story that, that crosses culture, too. I think you would be hard-pressed to find another vacation Bible story that is both referenced by Martin Luther King in his letters from the Birmingham jail, as well as the Beastie Boys in their hit, Shadrach. I'm just saying, there aren't a lot out there that cross different cultures like that. But it is a, a very popular story in Scripture. It's a very popular vacation Bible story. But to lay the foundation for the next two weeks, I want to kind of give you a little bit more about the book of Daniel. Because Daniel is a uniquely fascinating book that sits in the Old Testament. Daniel is, is one of the only books in the Old Testament that has two different languages comprised within it. Meaning from chapter 1 is going to be in Hebrew. Then you have from 2 to 8, I believe, is in Aramaic. And then from 9 and 10, it switches back over into Hebrew. Most books do not do that. And also what makes Daniel fascinating is it actually has two different styles. From chapters 1 through 6, we have what are kind of known as court tales. So when we, we talk about uh, Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, those are going to be kind of court stories. And then from 7 until the rest of the book, you have apocalyptic text right there in the middle of the Old Testament. One of the only books in the Old Testament that references anything apocalyptic. And so the book itself is unique. And it withstands the test of time, again, because people like Martin Luther King from the B.C. Boys have referenced these stories that we see. And so this morning, we're going to dive into Daniel, starting in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple because of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure uh, house of God. Next passage. The, the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. That's a laundry list of my life, it looks like. But, thank you. Uh, just kind of check, pulse check there. What is happening here is the Babylonians have taken over Jerusalem, and they've gone to Jerusalem, and what the king orders is, I want you to look at the men, and I want you to bring me the fittest men, the men that we can just quickly streamline into the Babylonian army. 
We want to use their men. We want to militarize them. We want to change the way that they think. We want to change their identities and make them like us. And that's how the story begins. A story of identity. And we also learn that he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And so he does this. He goes to Jerusalem and he brings back a lot of men who fit these qualifications. And in verses 6 and 7, we learn that among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Names mean a lot. Even today, names mean a lot. They carry a weight. Why you named your kid a certain thing, and we won't judge you if you named it something weird, but why you named your kid a certain thing, it means something. It means something to you. Maybe there's a family tie. Maybe it means something about a memory or experience, but names mean something, and the Babylonians knew that. Because when we look at at Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their names mean something too. Hananiah means God has been gracious in Hebrew. Mishael means who is like our God. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped us. These names carry weight. They matter to these people. What the Babylonians do is they say, hey, we're... We've taken over your people. We've taken over your city. We want to transform you to be like us. And so what they do is the first thing is they change their names. They attempt to change who they are, who they serve, and why they exist. And so to Hananiah, they name Shadrach, which means friend of the king. To Michelle, they name Meshach, which means worshiper of Shach another deity in this culture. And to Azariah, whose name Yahweh has helped, they name Abednego, which is servant of Nego. They change who they are, why they exist, and why they live. Thus laying the foundation for the book of Daniel. These individuals who are brought to a new land to become new people. And so when you look at the book of Daniel, a lot of it is identity. Discovering who these individuals are, but more so, who are we? Are we going to serve God when things get testy? Are we going to be able to say, no, I'm I'm not like the world. I'm like who God created me to be. And so in chapter 3, we get probably one of the most famous Bible stories that kids love. Judah begged to be in here. I told him today he was going to to, uh, to, uh, children's church. But I guarantee you that if they're learning the story this morning, I guarantee you this is a story these kids get excited about. Because it's unique, but it's also powerful even for grown-ups. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now this is a really a, when you look at biblical commentaries, people start to ask, what is this image of? Is it of the Babylonian gods, one of their gods? Is it an image of King Nebuchadnezzar? To that, I would say location, location, location. We're trying to determine what this image actually looked like. We have to realize that they built this in a plain. I mean, they built it out in, in a field. They didn't build this in a temple. If you're trying to understand if this god, if this, uh, excuse me, this image of gold is going to be a deity. It's got to be housed in a temple. 
Uh, think of like in the winter when the news people are like, if you're cold, your dogs are cold too. Bring them inside. That's the same mindset that you have to think about when you're building a, te- a structure to an ancient deity. If it was to that deity, it would be in a temple. This is not. Meaning it's, it's unlikely that it is an image of the Babylonian gods. More likely than anything, it's going to be a, a statue that celebrates King Nebuchadnezzar's accomplishments because of the god, if that makes sense. It's a little bit muddy, but it's not for the god specifically, and it's not specifically for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's more a monument to celebrate his achievements through that god. Thus, we don't have to bring it inside in the winter, if that makes sense. So they build this, this massive statue. And they set it out in this field. And in verse 2, it says, that he, su- he then summoned the satraps, the pre- prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now, if you're into lists, if, you lo- if you're an organizational person, you're going to love this because we keep getting these kind of repetitional lists that we see throughout this book. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you were commanded to do in verse 5. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp and pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I made this joke in class this morning. I'm going to make it again. This is why I believe that Church of Christ kids love the story. One of the only times you get to play with instruments inside the church. I'm just saying, it's there. So verse 6, Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now if you're tracking along at home, this is the first time that we've heard about a furnace. And so there was a lot of different theories as to What's the, thir- the furnace doing? Is the furnace for tor- torture? Which is my, maybe why kids like this story. It's likely that the furnace was there to build the statue. The, you know, it's the chicken before the egg. Which came first? You can't have a statue without a furnace. Which is likely why the furnace is there. But this is the first reference that we have of the dual purposes of said furnace. It's no longer just for building statues. Now it appears to be for punishment. And so, the text says, whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. If we were to stop there, it's not much of a vacation Bible story. Everybody does what everybody's supposed to do, right? You're feeling good about it. We've got this image. We have these orders. Everybody's playing cool instruments. They bow down. We did it. Now it's time for lunch. It's kind of what it feels like. But then in verse 8, we have what the Hebrew calls tattletales. In verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.'" If anybody is trying to get you to do something silly or potentially throw someone in a blazing furnace, they're always going to butter you up a little bit, which is what we have here, where it says, may the king live forever. 
Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the sacter, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Like, all right, this tracks, you know. Verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And before we move on, I want you to see a little bit of the tone there. Can you hear the jealousy? Can you hear it? It's right there in front of us. Whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You get this kind of like these outsiders, these people who aren't from here. They don't know the streets, the back roads. They, they don't know Babylon like we do. But you've set these people in these places of prominence, and now they are disobeying you. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar says, is this true? He calls these three guys to him, and he says, is this true? Now, next week we'll talk about where is Daniel in the story, because Daniel is noticeably absent. Uh, there's a lot of debate on what Daniel is doing, why is he not there in the thick of this, but Daniel is not there. But, but King Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 14, he says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you did not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. This feels so childish to me. I know that I live in a world of Legos and Barbie dolls right now, but like it just feels like, why did you do this mean thing to me? It, it feels like a fight between Judah and Isla. I mean, he, like, that's what it feels like when he's like, why didn't you do this one little thing? We've had these gods. I've built this really cool statue that these people seem to like, but the three of you decided not to do this. He says, now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. You're doing what I told you to do. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Again, the multi-purpose furnace that we now have over here. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I mentioned at the beginning of this, this book is a lot about identity. But it's also about character. See, every day we have choices. Every single day, I believe that God places moments and opportunities in front of us, whether that be with people or circumstances or whatever that may be, that God places those moments in front of you for you to decide who are you going to serve. When things get difficult, when things get challenging, what will your character look like? And the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, has just looked at these three young men and said, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to burn you alive. Again, vacation Bible story. But in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not, <clears throat> we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. It's already starting out pretty hot. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, 
We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It's powerful. Their lives are on the line. They are risking everything to stand up for what they believe in. But before we go into the story, I think we need to go a little bit further in history to 1960s. I love historical situations, and I love looking for these historical moments that we see, where like the, the tide of culture, the tide of, of the world and history begins to change. And in the 1960s, there were, there were a lot of debates on whether or not who was allowed to sit where. Larger arguments than that, but I'm going to try to bring it down to its service level. But in the 1960s, at a store called Woolworth Company in Greensville, North Carolina, on one just random day, these four African-American men walk inside of the Woolworth Company store, and they sit down at a counter. And when I looked through these interviews this week, they sat down at the counter, and they said that they could smell the familiar aroma of ham or egg salad sandwiches, that they could hear the whirl of the soda fountain and its milkshakes and the ice cream sodas above the low chatter of diners relaxing on an afternoon cup of coffee or a slice of apple pie. They go in, they sit down at the counter. And you likely know where I'm going with this, but this is a segregated store. They sat down at a whites-only counter. The 1960s couldn't do this. They said that they could feel the invisible line of separation between the shopping area open to everyone and the dining area that that barred blacks from taking a seat. They knew that as all blacks in the South did, that stepping over that line might mean that they get arrested, beaten, or even killed. So they sat down at this counter. They tried to order. And you can likely uh, assume what happened. The person at the counter said, hey, you guys can't sit here. And one of the overlooked elements in the story is these were three high school boys and a college freshman in Greensville, North Carolina in 1960. They sat at this counter. They tried to order. They told them no. They said, hey, maybe you should go over there where you belong. They sat there silently. And the story, the interviews that they did, this is the last person to approach the Greensboro Four on that first day was an elderly white lady who rose from her seat in the counter area and walked over toward them. So she sat down next to them and looked at the four students and told them that how disappointed in them she was. One of the individuals was in his Air Force ROTC uniform, was ready to defend their decision to sit at this counter, and remained calm and asked the woman, Ma'am, why are you disappointed in us for asking to be served like everyone else? And they retell the story that the elderly woman looked at them, putting her hand on his shoulder, and said, I'm disappointed it took you so long to do this. I love stories like this, where individuals stand up, or in this case, sit down for what they believe in, regardless of what consequences lay ahead of them knowing who they are, who they were created to be, and what they would be able to do by just doing this nonviolent, peaceful demonstration by sitting in a booth that they were previously not allowed to. If you're familiar with this movement, it sparked a, a movement all over the country of nonviolent protests called sit-ins. Now, a lot of these sit-ins just looked like this, where you sat at a counter that said you weren't allowed to. 
Some of them got violent. Some people were abused. Sometimes they had milkshakes poured on top of them. They sat there because they knew who they were. And they knew what they were willing to defend and stand up for. And as I I look through the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are a lot of examples of people who were willing to stand up for what they believe in, but I kept coming back to the Greensboro Four. Because these individuals risked a lot. They put their futures on the line because they believed in something so much in their bones, it affected them, it ate at them, until they finally did something for it. The story of Daniel continues in Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. Previously, they were in King Nebuchadnezzar's favor. He trusted them. He liked them. He wanted them to succeed. But the text tells us that his attitude towards them changes. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace." Stop right here and paint a picture of when my youth minister as a kid was really disappointed in the teenagers that they had signed up to do this particular VBS. When I was a kid, I was about seven years old. The teenagers who I looked up to and idolized were cast to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they were thrown into the blazing furnace, the youth minister realized that they hadn't given them any instruction. What do you do? when you find yourself in the blazing, fiery furnace. These three individuals decided to dance like no one had ever danced at the Penny Royal Church of Christ before in our history. And they cut a rug. And as a kid, that made such an impression on me because I laughed so hard. And I remember the faces of people disappointed and how funny it was to me that they were disappointed in this whole scene. But I tell you that because we don't know what they do. The text tells us, that King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into that fire? Now, it's important to know historically that angels become this really important moment in, in culture. And so when the text says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, or in the Penny Ryle case, dancing. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So again, it just means angels there. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Do you see the change in King Nebuchadnezzar? I I told the story about the Greensboro Four because it, it fits, but I love that ending of that elderly lady that just walked up to them and said, I'm so disappointed that it took you so long to do this. You have no idea how your actions and your decisions to stand up for who you are and who God created you to be will affect those around you. On this day, in this moment, King Nebuchadnezzar's life is changed because these three individuals stood up for God. They didn't back down. 
So Shadrach, verse 26, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. They do just like a quick inspection of how could this possibly be. Nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. But look, King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. Think about who's saying this. King Nebuchadnezzar saying, I was wrong. These three men showed me something that I've never seen, that I've never experienced. I am impressed and changed because they were willing to stand up for their God. It says they trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. And then as all ancient kings do, he makes a decree. Verse 29, therefore I decree, King Nebuchadnezzar is talking, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. I spent a lot of time looking at how this story affects everyone in here. It's a, a vacation Bible story that we like to tell kids because you can be silly with it. You can dance in the blazing furnace. But if we're honest with ourselves, the the book of Daniel and the story of the blazing furnace has major implications on how we live and how we exist. Because yes, the story is a lot about knowing who you are. It's about identity. But more than that, it's about who you belong to. And whether or not you are willing to stand up for God when things get difficult. When the blazing furnaces of life, they get too hot and you think, you know what, I can't do this anymore. God, this isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for the t-shirt and the mug. God, I didn't sign up for the challenges. I didn't sign up for the hostility. God, I didn't sign up for anything negative. It's in those moments that our character is defined. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Yes, it's about three young men who defy King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's also an important tale about us determining who we are and who we're going to serve and what that looks like when things get difficult. Let's stand and sing together.